everyone and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. Today's episode features award-winning business leader and entrepreneur Bob Keeler. Bob's leadership journey flourished when he took on the leadership of oil and gas company PSN and subsequently Wood Group. During his five-year tenure as CEO of PSN, the company featured in the Sunday Times Best Companies to Work For, four years running. It was ranked third in the UK for employee engagement and involvement and also featured in the top 10 in the UK for employee retention. More recently, Bob was chairman of Scottish Enterprise until December 2018 and today he runs AB15, a consultancy that advises and mentors businesses and entrepreneurs. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm sitting here at the School for CEOs HQ with Bob Keeler, CBE. It's wonderful to have you with me, Bob. That's great to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you, and well, welcome to the School for CEOs podcast. Um, there's a couple of themes that I'd like to explore with you today. Firstly, I'm really interested to learn more about your career right. um, and the journey that you've had so far. And I'd also like to ask you about your your opinion of leadership. Sure. Um, but to begin with, I'd like to discuss ambition right. and career planning. I'm really curious to understand what your ambitions were at the beginning of your career and how intentional you've been about the way you've planned out your career. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to sit here and tell you that it was a great master plan and I sat there as a child in primary school, plotting my way to the boardroom, but nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I was brought up in a, a council house environment, went to the state school in a small borders town, and as a result, the kind of ambition levels there were, were defined by what you could see around about you, and therefore things like, you know, playing rugby for the local town team at some point in your life was one of the ambitions. Um, maybe getting a job when you leave school, uh, and maybe getting even to see some of the world. These broad level things were, were in there. I remember lying as a nine-year-old on my back in a park in a summer with my close friend, who's still my very close friend, probably wearing Wellington boots given it was the summer holidays and short trousers, of course, and asking, what do you want to do when you're big? And his response was he wants to get a trade, i.e. he wants to become a, a skilled tradesman and wants to play rugby for Jed Forrest. And that was it. And he says, what about you? I says, I think I'd like to go and see some of the world and maybe be involved with working with teams of people. And it was as broad as that. And that was his nine-year-olds. And we, we meet together. We went skiing earlier on this year together with, with our respective uh, better halves. And we were reflecting on that. He's got no memory of that conversation at all. But I remind him, so what did he do in life? He's become a, an electrician, runs his own electrical contracting business, uh, played rugby for Jed Forrest for, forever uh, until way past when he should have done and I've worked with lots of people and seen a fair chunk of the world in the process so we both kind of achieved what we set out to do but back then my passion was art so I was into painting and I was into drawing and I thought I should make a living perhaps doing album covers for heavy metal bands and I was also reasonable at most other school subjects, but art was the thing I thought, that, that this is the one that I can really be passionate about. Um, but there was a realisation, partly spurred on by another close friend of mine who'd gone to Paisley Tech, as it was at the time, to do engineering, who also had a, 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 a skill in art. 
And he said, look, you know, the world of art is fiercely competitive and relies hugely not just on talent but on luck. Maybe you should think about having something as a fallback. So I thought, okay, what would I want to do as a fallback? And right around that time was at the time when kind of personal computing was becoming much more widely available. And I thought, computer engineering, I want to learn how computers work and, and what you can do with them, and how to make them better and how to program them, how to build them and all these kind of things. So I thought, I'll go and do engineering as my fallback career. And I'm still on that fallback career, you know, really. Now, what I didn't foresee at the time was, of course, if had, had I tried to get into the world of um, doing album covers, that the whole world of music was about to be tipped on its head a couple of years after with the introduction of the CD and then, you know, the move to online streaming and downloading. So really that career was probably not viable from the outset, irrespective of how talented or lucky I was. And you reached the role of of chief executive. So when did that become a goal? Was it a goal? Was it about, you know, pursuing a passion for people? Because you said travel and working with teams of people. Yeah, again, it, it, it was it was more. It happened rather than was it was deliberate because I was. I was working for an oil company, and part of the the deal there is I, I'd got promoted through different positions, and I'd got to effectively the top of the the management tree, and my boss had said to me, "Look, actually, the next move for you is to move to New York." Or and he joked about it. He said, "Or to leave the company and do something else." And I went, "Okay," now. The thought of moving to New York was full of, um, you know, promise and excitement. But I had three young children by this time. And my eldest son was getting ready to move up to senior school. And I couldn't reconcile the fact that me moving to New York would be good for the stability of his background in the family. And I thought it would be quite unfair to do that at that stage. So I took the, the second option and I left the company. And I jumped from being part of what they call the operating side of the business into the service side of the business. Um, and that was, a, that was a big change of culture for me. And I moved into that area and I, was, um, I didn't know a lot about it, so I had to learn pretty quickly. But within about three or four months, I was offered, would I take over the role as managing director of the UK business for uh, the production services element of a company called KBR? And I thought, that's fine. And by then, I had two or 3,000 people working for me, and I'm running a big team, and I'm running a big budget, and I've got lots of customers, and I'm thinking, this is different, very different from what I've done in the past, but there's, there's improvements to be made here. Um, so I made various improvements and began to turn the business around, and then got asked, would I take over as the global managing director for... Um, that part of the business. It was still a relatively small part of a large international business. So there was no thoughts at that time of of reaching the board of this business. This was just doing the next task that was in front of you. But it quickly became clear when I got into that business that the business was unloved within the organisation. It was considered to be the, the poor performer. It was considered to have a poor safety record, which actually was erroneous. And when I went across to, to present the strategy and uh, get some feedback from my lords and masters who were based in, in Houston and Texas, um, they were quite damning about the business. And I'm looking at it thinking, they've got it wrong. Because what they've done is they've taken a whole chunk of the corporate overhead costs 
allocated it to the business and said, look, the business is not making any money. And we were thinking, yeah, but this is an arbitrary allocation of costs that's got nothing to do with the business. And that's when I decided we should buy this business. And that was the first time that I thought, okay, we're going to buy the business. So what would we do with it? Well, we'll do a management buyout. Uh, We'll borrow money from somewhere. We'll buy the business and we'll grow it on our own. And ultimately, we'll float it on the stock market. So that was the plan that we hatched probably at late 2014, but it took us through till 2016, sorry, 2004, took us through to 2006 to get it executed and get it over the line. Um, And that was when we created the company called PSN in May 2006. And that was when I became CEO for the first time, not by dint of a plan, but by dint of an opportunity. Okay, okay. And you clearly had huge success at PSN so um, you you were featured in the Sunday Times Best Companies to Work For several years running I've actually got four years in a row here and you were third in the UK for employee engagement and involvement I'm going to come back to to kind of digging into some of that yep. um, in, a, in a minute but sure. before we do I'm really interested in the topic of succession. So um, we have a programme, Vital Few. It's a two-day programme, which is all about preparing people for the CEO role. Right. And there's there's either the internal successor, so we Mm -hmm. often have individuals who are on the ex-co and their potential successors to the current CEO, or they might have been brought in from outside. Um, But I'm really interested in that, that stepping up. So you had that experience of stepping up into that role, so essentially becoming the leader of your peer group yeah. and then you eventually moved out and you inter- you appointed your successor from your executive leadership team so Indeed. I'm really interested to explore what was that like I think the, I think the good thing about it is both my predecessor in one transition and my successor in the other transition were real top quality people and they were heavily involved in the business they were very good at what they did and very sure-footed, so it made my role in both of those transitions all the easier. Uh, and I had, um, I trusted both parties and worked well with both parties. So I, I, I suppose I had the easiest of transitions in that sense. Even though you're stepping up to the role of, of, of a CEO of a large company, I was already on the board. I was already part of the Exco. I was running the largest division in the business. And I got on really well with the managing director or the, the CEO of the business who then moved into the chair's role at the same time. So a relationship maintained throughout that and then the chair stepped down at that time. So there was a continuity there that meant if I needed advice, I could go and ask for advice. If I needed help, I could get help. If I needed space, um, perfectly willing to give me the space to do things as well, which which worked pretty well. And therefore, I found that the bits that I had to learn, which was more about the public facing of the company in terms of management, shareholder expectations, delivery of results, etc. I'd been involved in that process, but I hadn't led that process. So I had to learn the, the rules of that game and had to get into the rhythm of that part of the business. But most of the other elements of the business, uh, I was already reasonably familiar with. When it came to me stepping down, similarly, uh, I, I had my, my successor working alongside me for an extended period of time uh, and also taking part in the investor relations elements of the business and looking across different parts of the business so that the transition was relatively easy at that point to say, well, actually, you know, you don't need to look for a successor because there's a successor standing right next to you 
that makes it easy. Now, in the role of chair, I've been involved in various succession issues within organisations, and not all of them have been so smooth. So I do consider that my own personal experiences have been relatively lucky by comparison with some others, because in other situations I've seen people where uh, somebody has elected to leave the organisation without a succession plan being in place, and we've had to go and recruit a new CEO and bring them in for the outside, which is what I had to do at Scottish Enterprise, for instance. Okay. And noticed a couple of things. Exposure was almost a theme between yeah. stepping up and stepping stepping yeah. out, so actually having an opportunity to be involved in, if not leading, certain activities. It certainly helps. Yeah. It certainly helps. I mean, I... I can imagine bringing somebody in from outside the sector into a role in a large organisation would take a lot of planning and forethought and a lot of effort. But having somebody who already knows the the, the business and knows the people and knows the culture of the organisation makes it just so much easier. Um, It still doesn't relieve the CEO, the incoming CEO, to actually um, fill the space and do the job but it makes the, the transition just that little bit easier. I'd like to move on to, to leadership. Okay. And um, I've heard you speak before very eloquently about uh, changing culture, and you call it doing core values. Yep. Um, how do you change a culture? Well, when you think about what people talk about culture, and they use throwaway phrases like, it's the way things get done around here. But in any organisation of more than a few people, it's likely that there is more than one culture. So the culture of the team that works in the office down the road or works on the site up the, up the hill or whatever is likely to be slightly different because it's, it's influenced by peers, it's influenced by history, what the culture was yesterday, and it's influenced by what the, the leadership of that particular group of people um, expects and accepts. So culture's got a lot of drivers for me, and some of it's to do with rules and procedures and that, but not that much. It's mostly to do with people. So how do you get something that changes the way people feel about an organisation? And to me, it's this idea about getting into the hearts and minds of the people by giving them a set of values and clarity of purpose to say, this is what we're all about And I don't expect you to believe that until I've given you lots of evidence to support it. But once I've given you lots of evidence to support it, and I can show you that we're absolutely passionate about this, you can have faith and trust that this is what we're all about, and this is what we expect in terms of how people should act and behave in this organisation. And the consequence is, if we do all that, we're all pulling in the same direction, we're more likely to be successful. The corollary of that is if you don't, then you don't fit in with the organisation. You either have to change or move. And these are difficult conversations to have. So the, 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 the idea of changing culture for me is it starts with leadership, but it has to be about incessant, obsessive communication. It has to be about honesty around about whatever the values of your organisation happen to be. And it has to be backing it up with actions that people can see and say, ah, right, I can see that decision is absolutely consistent with the culture, or it all falls apart because people smell a rat and say, it's all just window dressing, it's just marketing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where I, when I, I get asked to come and help businesses a lot, and the leadership teams are struggling with culture, and I'm saying that's because you're talking about culture and you're putting nice documents together and you're putting them on websites, you're not actually doing anything. You really need to get out there and show your actions 
are consistent with the culture and repeatedly reassure that and tell people about it. And and that takes a lot of time and effort. And I think at one point somebody asked me, well, how much of your time do you spend communicating internally within the organisation? And I worked it was about a third of my time. So that was over a day a week that I was spending on internal communication. And people say, well, that's that's a crazy amount of time. I say, what's the alternative? If you're trying to take a large group of people with you, you need to be somehow talking to them and addressing them regularly, and more importantly, listening to them regularly and making sure you've built the culture where people will come forward and talk to you. None of that happens without lots of repetition, lots of action, lots of communication, lots of face-to-face Lots of one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many. Uh, and all of that takes a lot of time and effort. And most people, I think, would say, but surely that's somebody else's job. And they haven't got it, if that's what they're saying. <laughs> I think in, from what I've seen is that the, it's difficult for a leader to impact the culture if nobody recognises who the leader is when they walk into a room. Now, in a small organisation, that maybe is a different a different type of challenge. But in a large organisation, for me, if somebody's going to actually, if you've got a culture that you want to be proud of, you can't do it half-hearted. You've, you've actually got to be committed to it. And if you commit to it properly and you're clear what you mean by it and you, you embed it in everything you do, then you might, you just might actually, after a while, get people believing you. Then they might start following you and they might start buying into it. And then ultimately your reputation might start to attract people because they think that's the kind of culture we want to be part of. Uh, and all of that, I think, is a positive reinforcement. And it's like the, 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 the big the mill wheel that begins to turn under its own momentum with lots of little pushes. And you think, this is, this is great. But people often underestimate the part that they can play in doing that. So I had a manager, for instance, that was working out in a, a contract in Singapore on Jurong Island. And he came and he said, I want to actually go to the client and tell them, give them an ultimatum, we're going to walk away from this contract. I said, okay, we've never done that before. We're going to be walking away from revenue and profit, which we fight hard to earn. What's the thinking? He says, no, the, the controls over the work on the site are so poor, somebody's going to get seriously hurt. We've tried to raise this and nothing happens. Some of our people are going to get injured or worse. We can't do this. I said, okay. The only decision that's in line with our core value is to say, go and have that conversation. If you don't get the right answer, we, we're off. We went and had the conversation. It was quite fraught, but eventually the client said, can you help us to change the culture on our site? Which we stayed and we helped and transformed it. It took a while, but once they understood the issue and how serious we were about it, they were, they were all for it. And I could give you lots and lots of examples that reinforce the actions that reinforce the culture. Um, and that's for me this authenticity of we do what we say and we say what we do. So, you know, when I did the TEDx talk and I talked about doing core values, it's the kind of the action element of it for me is much more important than just the words. Mm. You mentioned you, you spend a third of your time, uh, or you, you used to spend a third of your time communicating. Yeah. Um, and in that particular TEDx talk, you talked about uh, trust and leadership and your weekly emails. Yes, it did. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of them was entitled Your Baby is Ugly. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, how you communicated with and engaged your key stakeholders, but most importantly, your employees internally. Yeah. So if you can imagine it as a series of different layers, 
um, different layers of, of ways of communicating with different levels of people. So at one level, you have your immediate team that you meet on a regular basis. So it's a face-to-face regular meeting, typically a weekly or a monthly meeting. That's fine. Then there'll be a layer below that in the organisation of about 100 or so top managers. And I would agree that at least twice a year I'd have a one-to-one meeting with them. Now, I couldn't always do that face-to-face because of geography, but it was a private meeting, and it wasn't about asking anybody about how they're getting on at work. It was about establishing a little bit about, you need to know me and I need to know you, just in case we've ever got a difficult thing we need to say to each other. You need to know that you can pick up the phone to me because you know the sound of my voice, and I need to know that I can talk to you. And in the meantime, I can get to know a little bit more about you, about your history, about your family circumstances, so this wasn't a, a, a checkup on performance. It was establishing an open communication channel so that people felt confident to say, Bob, there's some great stuff here that you're not shouting about, you need to know about. Or conversely, there's some things happening in this part of the business that I'm not sure that you're paying right attention to. You need to come and have a look at this. And that was a great way of doing that. So that's, that's purely a trust-building exercise? Purely a trust-building exercise on the basis that trust doesn't happen unless you know somebody. So you, don't, you can't know somebody if you never talk to them. So that's exactly what it was. And of course, I would take notes uh, after each meeting so that when I was able to go in the next meeting, I was able to reflect on, say, when we talked six months ago, you were talking about doing uh, night classes. How's it gone? And did you, did, you, did you pass your exams? And how did your daughter get on? And things like that. Not because I'm trying to be creepy or anything like that. It's just I'm trying to show that actually I'm taking the time to remind myself and show that actually I'm a human being, you're a human being. And you know, if we establish that level of, of respect then I know that when I need to talk to you about something, you won't be thinking, well, this is a a nameless bureaucrat from somewhere else that I don't even know that I'm not going to trust. So there's that. So that's like the the second layer down. And you can go down through the layers. And one of those layers was I'm going to do regular um, messages uh, out to the teams. And that was the weekly blog. Um, I did another one for a while. I was reminded of it recently. Somebody contacted me on LinkedIn and said, I never understood how you pulled off the trick with the birthday cards. I said, what trick with the birthday cards? He says, you used to sign birthday cards for people in the organisation. I said, oh, yeah, I've forgotten all about that. He said, how did you do it? I said, I sat with a pile of blank cards and a list of names on a Monday morning and spent about an hour writing out by hand birthday cards. And he says, he says I thought, I thought it was a printing process involved. I th- he said, I honestly thought it was done with a team of volunteers or something. I said, no, no, it t- took about an hour a week. I said, but the, f- the buy-in that I got was I sent out a bis- birthday card to people that arrived at their home address with, with the office of the, from the CEO written on the back of the envelope. And at home, people was, oh, my goodness, I got a handwritten card from the CEO. And my f- colleagues used to think I was mad. But for the investment of an hour a week, the amount of buy-in that that would get me was, was amazing. So that was one of the many different channels, but the, the weekly blog was one that I started off uh, pretty poorly because I used to write it as a management update. And like most management updates, they were pretty boring. And, and also on top of that, the, my comms team would, would go in and tidy up the, the, the language to the point that they became much more corporate. And I realised when I started asking people about it that they were kind of saying, oh yeah, it's, it's good that you're doing it, but nobody actually pays any attention to it because it's not that interesting. And then I realised, well, the challenges we'll meet, how do I make them interesting and how do I make them personal and how do I make them relevant? Um, so having interesting titles, having interesting themes, a uh, bit more personal information in there, um, all of these things helped to get the readership 
involved and, and I could gauge that by the amount of responses I got every week I sent them out. So I typically get a few tens of responses the first few weeks and then it would increase to hundreds. And eventually, because I used to go back to every single person that came back to me and I counted over 10,000 times that I'd gone back to staff and commented on what they'd said about my talk because sometimes they would challenge me and say that's not right or I disagree with that or I've got an example here. And also what that would do is it flush out lots and lots of stories for me to be able to use and turn that around and share with the organisation. So it was a great source of generating stories within the organisation as well. Once people realised that you weren't going to do anything that was going to embarrass anybody or wasn't going to do say anything that was that was um, you know in any way provocative. And I also understood that the notes that I would send out into my business were being copied into my competitors' organisations and copied around the competitors as well, which was a fantastic recruitment tool. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> people would send it to their friends that they used to work with and they would copy it to other people. I'm thinking, wow, that was an unexpected upside of basically sitting down and saying, I'm going to write these blogs and I'm going to try and write them in such a way that I'd want to read them. How fantastic that you've created an atmosphere where people can challenge. Yeah, and and it was... I mean, it is an interesting one, that, because a lot of people say, my door is always open, you can come any time. I'm thinking, no, no, let's get rid of the doors. Let's sit in amongst the people. So we used to sit in an open plan mm-hmm. in amongst the teams so that if anybody did really want to come and speak to you, all they had to do was to walk across and say, can I have a quick word? Can I speak to you? And that was kind of physically breaking down the barriers from what previously we'd been when we'd been part of a large American organisation when there was a definite hierarchy and there was access controls to senior people. A lot of nonsense, to be honest. Um, but this idea, it's okay to challenge. How do you prove that to people? Whereas many years ago, they might have found that wasn't the case. So we used to have things like core value awards. So we'd give people awards for doing different things. And often we would, the, the award was for somebody coming forward and doing, you know, challenging somebody. So we used to have a, a simple thing. So one of my managers in the UK, a guy called Peter, uh, this very young and fresh person in the organisation had stopped him because he was, uh, he was walking down a set of stairs and he wasn't holding the handrail. Our rules at the time were you have to hold the handrails because it's the most dangerous thing that you do in an office. Simple. And uh, he went and gave, uh, got a, a, a core value award for that person for having the courage to speak up against what was the, the UK manager at the time, the senior person in the building. But instead of actually saying, uh, how dare you, it was, no, no, the opposite way about you did exactly the right thing. And I want other people to see that that is welcomed. I had another one. I was, I was, I was taking a telephone call, leaning over a balcony, and there was a sign up behind me saying, please don't lean over the balcony when you're making telephone calls. And somebody came out of one of the offices, came round to me and physically pulled me away from the balcony so that I could carry on the telephone conversation and then pointed to the sign, gave me the thumbs up, walked away. And I thought, brilliant, just brilliant. And I'm laughing away on the telephone call. So when I finished, I went downstairs to the restaurant. I bought a, a tray of cupcakes and took it up and gave it to, to that person and their team by saying, thank you. You didn't have to do that. Some people might have seen that as a high-risk thing to do, but if you don't mind, I'm now going to share that in next week's weekly blog as an illustration of the permission that we're giving people to speak up. Because if they won't speak up about things like that, they're not going to speak up about things that are maybe the financial nature or a safety nature or an integrity nature, and organisations will, will, will fall apart if people start hiding information. And um, What wonderful examples those are. <laughs> 
And Bob, you're focusing a lot of time and energy on communicating key messages. Over the years, I think I've learned that um, it's not just what you're saying, it's how you wrap it up, how you you get it across. And the more and more uh, I I practiced it, the more I realized that I, I needed fewer and fewer PowerPoint slides. And if I could use stories and storytelling about the business, uh, so no, not fantasy or imagination, just business stories were the way of getting people to remember the examples and to remember the key messages. So becoming a student of and a practitioner of storytelling in business for me was, was a, a, a journey that I probably started in about 2002 when I was part of the Halliburton organisation I'm still on that journey because I think the more effective you can get as a storyteller within business, then the more likely are that you're going to engage with people on both an intellectual and an emotional level, which means they're going to remember what you say and probably take to heart what you're going to say and therefore act upon any key messages. And I think it's an an underexploited approach within business because we all think it's not serious. We need graphs, we need data, we need bullet points, we need key messages. And I'm saying, yeah, but actually, if I tell you a short story that captures that key message, you're more likely to remember it. So if you if you look at the, you, know, you talked earlier on there about the TEDx talk that I did in Glasgow in 2017. Um, my TEDx talk, which is 12 minutes long, um, is actually only two stories. It's a four-minute story and a, an eight-minute story, but the eight-minute story includes some conclusions. And the first four-minute story uh, follows the structure of a story in the same way that Pixar would follow the structure of a story or um, Disney or anybody else that's, that's renowned storytellers because that's what it was written against the template that says this is my story template and this is how to make sure the bits hang together and they work. Um, and I think when I share that with people and they see the power of being able to express themselves individually but in a business context to get the message across then they need far fewer numbers in a presentation but far bigger impact it's interesting because i could recall most of the details of that story that four minute story yeah but what you're saying is you followed a template oh, and yeah. it actually was it was quite scientific yeah. in that sense in fact one of the things i do when, it, when I, I show people some of that is i show them the scaffolding behind it and I show them the the first draft, then I show them the subsequent drafts and where I've added bits in and taken bits away, where I've included things, elements from rhetoric, like uh, they call it a rising tricolon, which is like using three elements in a row, where I've used other techniques to build up the, the drama in the story and how I've linked the story, the first story to the second story. And it's all in there um, as, as a series of learnable and teachable techniques to help people to take their, their raw story and turn it into something potentially that people will remember years after they heard it. And is that something that you can apply to any kind of communication? Because sometimes you're trying to get, deliver news which is frankly quite dry. Um, the, only, the only area where I found that communication was by necessity really restricted was when you were delivering the financial results from a, lim- a public company where every word is potentially being analysed by someone and therefore sticking to the script is important. So on those occasions, I did exactly what I was expected to do, which was to read the script and answer the questions. 
But in every other occasion, the ability to harness the power of storytelling will take a, a routine presentation into something that people will never forget. And I'm, I'm really... The more people in business that understood that at an earlier stage, the more effective they could be potentially as communicators. But most of us get as knocked out of us at early stage because we see other people at conferences delivering mind-numbingly dull presentations and we think, well, that's the norm. Because nobody, nobody boos at the end of it, they all clap. So we think that's the norm, that's what's expected. Therefore, it's easier to comply than to be different. And by being different, it requires an element of risk-taking. And people think, well, I'll take risks, but I don't know how. And that's why it's taken me a number of years to kind of try and understand what's the how behind this so that I can now do presentations that include they include graphics, they include pictures, they include videos, they include stories, and therefore they're more interesting than they would be if I just stuck to a more conventional approach of I'll give you some bullet points and I'll talk around them in a kind of business-like way. I've got one more question. Sure. If I was to start my first CEO role tomorrow, what advice would you give me? That's interesting because you told me that you've got a two-day programme for people joining CEOs, so it takes you two days at least to get people <laughs> thinking through that transition. I, that feels a bit like one of these Hello Magazine questions. You know, what's the one book you've read that's changed your life? And I'm reluctant to give it one piece of advice because it's too simplistic in that sense because it all depends. It would depend on the, the transition. It would depend on the history. It depend on whether it was an, somebody from within the organisation or outside. It would depend on how well you knew the business, the market, the customers, etc. So it all depends. Broadly speaking, however, I think it, it would be more around the lines of saying there is no textbook for the job. And nobody's going to tell you when it's not going well until it's much too late. And lots of people are going to tell you what you want to hear. So take everything a little bit at uh, um, with a little sense of suspicion to make sure you do your own listening, you do your own hearing, you do your own digging and work out what the role is for you as opposed to what it is for anybody else because nobody's going to tell you how to do it. And when it goes wrong, it's probably too late to do anything about it. Bob, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast with host Gemma Soul and guest speaker Bob Keeler. Bob grew up wanting to be an artist, but found himself pursuing a career in engineering. Reflecting on our conversation afterwards, it seems as though he's committed to both. There's a rigour and structure in the way that he dedicates his time and energy to changing individual thought processes and behaviour, and ultimately an organisational culture. But there's also an underlying appeal to human emotion, in the way that art does. He talks about changing hearts and minds, appealing to both logic and emotion. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website, www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available on Spotify or iTunes. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.